another episode of Addictions Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. I'm joined here today with Catherine Keyes, a professor of epidemiology from Columbia University, to talk about her and her colleague Megan Patrick's paper titled Hallucinogen Use Among Young Adults Aged 19 to 30 in the United States, Changes from 2018 to 2021. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. So your paper uses longitudinal data from the Monitoring the Future study to examine past year use and frequency of hallucinogen use overall and by sex. But before we dive into the findings, I would like to start by asking you to provide a little background on hallucinogens. So what this category covers, what the effects and uses are of hallucinogens. Sure. Um, so the hallucinogens that we query in Monitoring the Future range from hallucinogens like LSD, um, which probably people are familiar with, to other types of hallucinogens such as psilocybin, which is sometimes called magic mushrooms or shrooms, um, as well as other types of products that generally create mind-altering states. Um, and that can range from, you know, just generally more positive mood or kind of more subjective experiences of reality. Some people, you know, especially at high doses, experience auditory or visual hallucinations. Um, and, and so there's a, a range of products that kind of create those experiences that we query in monitoring the future. Why do you think that this is an important area for research at this time? Um, yeah, there's been a lot of increased interest in hallucinogens in recent years, especially as there's been increased discussion um, in research and clinical communities about reviving the use of psychedelics and hallucinogens for therapeutic uses and for medical uses. So there's been um, a lot more uh, attention to these products as potential uh, adjuncts to therapy. Um, and we've been tracking hallucinogen use as well as a range of other drugs and monitoring the future for decades. And so as we conduct our regular surveillance, when we do see um, particular drugs where we see a notable increase or decrease in the prevalence of use, you know, that's one of the reasons we do this surveillance so we can provide that information to to the public. Absolutely. And I just wondered in the in your paper, the examples that you give are the ones that you've already given, such as psilocybin, LSD. And I was wondering whether ketamine and MDMA fall into this bracket, because there have also been talks about its use for medical um, and therapeutic uses, but that it doesn't automatically maybe lend itself in that category. We, category. we assess prevalence of MDMA. Um, and while MDMA mm -hmm. is not traditionally categorized as a hallucinogen, it does can mm -hmm. provide some of those similar, um, you know, uh, experiences of positive mood and connection and, um, and, and can have some hallucinatory aspects to them. But we don't, we don't capture them in the category of hallucinogens, although other surveys do. And so back to your paper, could you start us with some take home messages that you found? Sure. I think the biggest take home message that we found is this category hallucinogens other than LSD is where we're seeing the biggest increases year over year, especially going from 2020 to 2021. Um, we really saw substantial increases in the prevalence of young adults who are reporting that they, that they use hallucinogens other than LSD. And we didn't see the same trend in reports of use of LSD. It was really this category of hallucinogens other than LSD. 
And um, well, we don't have as much data on the specific types of hallucinogens other than LSD that people are using in, in monitoring the future. It did seem, based on our preliminary data, that psilocybin or magic mushrooms was really driving that increase because that is the most commonly used hallucinogen in that category of other than LSD hallucinogen products that people report and monitoring the future. So we believe that this increase is really being driven by um, use of psilocybin. Yeah, I also found that interesting as well, because these these drugs aren't new. They have been around for, for, for ages. Why do you think that the increase in use or increase in interest in these substances are coming now? Sure, it's always hard to know, you know, exactly what's driving the particular increase or decrease in the prevalence of any drug um, that we've been studying and monitoring the future for a long time. Certainly with respect to hallucinogens, we do think that, you know, this increased attention to the use of hallucinogens and the potential therapeutic benefits of hallucinogens may be involved in increasing their popularity. But we also know that there's um, increased popularity of so-called microdosing or using hallucinogens in very small quantities. Um, people who microdose report that they experience more positive mood, more connections, more creativity when they, um, when they microdose with hallucinogens. And so that's certainly been something we've been seeing reports of, of increased popularity of that kind of use. In your paper, you also mentioned that you were measuring the non-medical or recreational uh, use of these hallucinogens. I just wondered what the medical uses for psilocybin um, and the, the other the other um, non-LSD hallucinogens um, were that was co- that was coming up either in, I guess media or the literature? Yeah, there have been a number of clinical trials and they're growing in in size and in, in rigor. Um, and, you know, certainly for both MDMA and psilocybin, um, there's, uh, it, it looks like therapeutic uses for conditions like PTSD and treatment resistant depression are where some of the strongest signals are coming from, from the clinical trials. And it looks like there may be approval in the U.S., um, in the coming months for those products, and they've already been approved in, in several other countries as well. But really, for many conditions, there are you know increased research efforts to study these products in clinical trials, including eating disorders, including addiction, um, you know alcohol use disorder, and smoking cessation are among the areas where there are there's accumulating evidence in terms of clinical trials. So really, for a, a real wide range of psychiatric conditions, there's um, an interest in using these products for therapeutic uses in conjunction usually with um, with other types of therapy as well. So in your study, you use a longitudinal uh, data from Monitor in the Future study, and you and your co-author have published quite a lot of work u- using the data from this study. Could you provide us with just a little bit of background on Monitoring the Future? Who does it capture, age ranges, how long it's been going for, what questions it covers, etc.? Sure. Uh, Monitoring the future really has kind of two components. Um, One is a cross-sectional survey that we conduct of U.S. school attending adolescents. Um, And we conduct that survey every year and have been since 1976. Um, We've conducted a nationally representative survey of 12th grade students um, since 1976, and we added 8th and 10th grade students in 1991. And then since 1976, with every um, 12th grade cohort, which in the U.S. is, you know, around age 18, we select a subsample of those 
respondents and we follow them forward over time. So we start a new cohort every single year of students who are graduating from high school. Um, they're randomly assigned to begin their follow-up either at age 19 or age 20. And then they're followed every two years and, until they're 30. And then after age 30, they're followed every five years. So, you know, from the 1976 cohort, we're now starting um, follow-up surveys of people in their 60s. Um, so we really have a, quite a long time span and lifespan of individuals measuring their drug use um, and related health behaviors. Great. So you use uh, monitoring the future data. Is this publicly available? Can anyone use it? Is it, yeah? Could you tell us a bit more about how researchers could access if that's possible? Sure. Yeah. Monitoring the future data is publicly available. Um, and also we had to, to use the cross-sectional data. Anyone can go online and download and use the data. Um, and the panel data is also available for researchers. There's an application process, but um, you know, then it then it is available. Um, and it's there's no cost to use it. And we really encourage people to use monitoring the future data. It's such a rich data set. And you know, even if all of us who are on the research team spent 24 hours a day for the next 50 years analyzing monitoring the future data, we would only, you know, be able to examine a subset of what's included. And so um, I would really encourage people who are interested in substance use and trends over time in development um, to look at monitoring the future and consider whether those data would be appropriate for the research questions that they're interested in. And do these questions change depending on the climate of interest of drug consumption? For example, are questions on hallucinogens included from 1976? Or has that been a new addition? Has some questions dropped in and out of popularity? Yeah, we change the questions. We change the drugs that are included over time as new drugs become relevant and um, of concern for public health. We include both kind of new drug classes. Um, you know, MDMA, for example, wasn't measured in those early surveys. Um, we've measured LSD and other hallucinogen use since the, the beginning of the study. Um, but we'll also change the drug categories that are included um, when we describe drugs to survey respondents, we might change, you know, the way in which we describe the drug to the adolescents as new street names become popular um, and as questions just need to be updated over time. In your study, you found that past year use of LSD was 4.2% in 2021, non-LSD use, uh, hallucinogen use, sorry, was 6.6% in 2021. Among young adults, where does this prevalence sit among other substances? Is this relatively high, relatively low? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, certainly it's not as prevalent as other substances that are legal for people who are 21 and over. You know, certainly these drugs are less prevalent than alcohol use and even tobacco, cigarette use, um, and other kinds of nicotine products. Um, it's higher, though, than products like heroin, other types of narcotics. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's an in the same range as drugs like amphetamines and cocaine, um, which are not infrequently used among young adults. So it's probably in that range. And you found that the correlates of um, non-LSD hallucinogen use uh, included being uh, male, white, and from households with higher parental education. Is this the, are, are these the demographics that you expected to be associated with non-LSD consumption regarding, I guess, past literature? Is this consistent? 
it's consistent with some the literature on some drugs and inconsistent with with other drugs. You know, certainly males compared to females um, have a higher prevalence of use to, of of most drugs. Um, so I don't think that was a surprise. Um, and especially among young adults, we often see higher prevalence among white adolescents compared to racialized minority adolescents. Um, although again, that's not true for for all drugs, but it's true for a lot of them. So I don't think that's surprising. Um, and similarly, again, with some drugs like alcohol use, for example, at young ages is often more prevalent among, uh, you know, young adults and adolescents from higher socioeconomic status. Um, so, you know, certainly this is consistent with what we see with some other drugs. It's not a complete surprise. So if hallucinogen use is increasing and the interest in the area is increasing, what questions beyond prevalence and frequency would you or the research world be interested in in knowing? Sure. I mean, I think that the value of um, this analysis is is that as these products are approved for therapeutic use, you know, of course, there's going to be a concern for increases in non-medical use. Um, you know, using these substances through unregulated providers and uh, in non-medical ways increases the potential for harm. Um, you know, when you're in an altered mood state, uh, you can experience a wide range of adverse outcomes. And I think, um, you know, it must be the case that as we roll out these regulated uses of these products, tracking potential unregulated um, non-medical increases is an important adjunct to any surveillance of their medical use as well. Yeah, and I also suppose that we'd want to understand where the demand was being supplied for. I guess what I'm getting at, if the expansion of psychedelics and hallucinogens is going to be the new cannabis, how how big are we expecting it to be? So cannabis prevalence is, well, at the moment, way higher than hallucinogen consumption. And we're getting that through legal supply and also the, you know, the legacy markets as well. I'm just wondering who the who the new players may be in a hallucinogen market if it is to expand or if it will remain a lower percentage than cannabis. Absolutely. And, and psilocybin and, and some of these other products, you know, you can grow them naturally. You can also create them mm. synthetically. And there are a lot of new novel psychedelics that are also synthetically created. Um, and because they remain illegal in many parts of the world, you know, there is kind of a barrier to their use, especially among young people. But again, as these products become decriminalized and even legalized and if for therapeutic uses in the United States and Oregon and then decriminalized in many other areas as well. And as for-profit industries create new markets for psychedelics, there is the potential for a diversion and for you know, non-medical use as these sources of psilocybin and other kinds of psychedelic products increase. Yeah, no, that is interesting. And I... Have you found more data out there for hallucinogen use at the population level or is it monitoring the future that is uh, the main stage at the moment for uh, large scale surveys in the US? There are other national surveys that have also examined prevalence over time of hallucinogens, including LSD, as well as other psychedelics. 
But in our review of the literature, we didn't see any surveys that went through 2021. And where we saw the biggest increase was this change from 2020 to 2021. Um, and other mm-hmm. national surveys haven't reported trends over a similar time period. So that remains a little bit unknown. Do you think there was a role of COVID within those years? I, I, I guess it's a question we all have to ask when we're looking through 2020 uh, to 2021. But I was wondering, yeah, it, it, what was the role of COVID with this? Yeah, it, 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 it's surprising because, you know, during that time period, we had a lot of social distancing protocols and preferences. And so young adults weren't interacting as much. And for some other drugs, we saw declines among young adults um, compared to what we would have expected from the historical trends. You know, alcohol use, for example, declined among young adults during that time. But we did see other drugs that also increased in prevalence during COVID, cannabis use being one of them, where in in our survey, we did see increases in use during that time. And that could be because people are, you know, using substances out of loneliness, out of boredom, um, you know, to cope with other kinds of stressors. um, And psychedelics might fit into that category, especially because it creates or it's intended to create a more positive mood state. so, you know, certainly the role of COVID, I found it surprising because I would think that, you know, so much of drug use when you're a young adult is social. It's a social phenomenon. Um, but certainly the literature doesn't suggest that all these drugs declined. So I think there's more that remains to be unpacked and then kind of seeing what the long term trend is, especially for young people who where COVID was a real disruption and what the historical trends were, whether it was a disruption upward or downward, you know, whether trends kind of return back to pre-pandemic levels or whether it really creates a long-term change in people's drug use and their preferences, you know, we're going to be tracking that in an ongoing way and monitoring the future. Great. Well, that that actually leads me to my next question, because I was going to ask, are you planning additional research in the hallucinogen space? Um, We will certainly continue tracking these trends in terms of surveillance, and that's really what Monitoring the Future is really designed to do, is is conduct this year-to-year surveillance. Um, You know, we do have a lot of other data on potential risk factors, um, and the other benefit of Monitoring the Future is our longitudinal design. So we can see in the coming years what the implications are for adolescents who are using hallucinogens now, whether that has implications for things like social role transition, transition to other kinds of drug use, you know, does use of psychedelics predict increased incidence of other kinds of drugs as well, um, and and all kinds of kind of adult outcomes of drug use at, at this young age. You know, that's certainly what we're designed to track and we'll we'll continue to do so for hallucinogens and, and other drugs too. Great. And You've been using psychedelics and hallucinogens interchangeably. Are they used interchangeably? Is there a a difference between these words or are they the same? I think mostly they're used interchangeably and and surveys differ in the in the types of products that they will consider to be hallucinogens versus psychedelics. But, you know, generally I would consider these kind of mind altering substances, um, you know, in the general category of hallucinogens and then kind of a broader category of psychedelics more generally. Is there anything else that you wanted to uh, speak about that you, you wanted to bring from your paper um, that you want to yeah, get out there, I guess? Um, no, I mean, I think the real take home message is that we are seeing these pretty substantial increases, especially compared to what we historically have seen for hallucinogens. Um, 
we're seeing pretty substantial increases in, in recent years. And, and I think we do want to highlight that because I think there's a lot of interest and there's a lot of excitement about the use of psychedelics and hallucinogens for therapeutic uses. But it's really important to continue to track non-medical use alongside of that. Um, sometimes I think that there's you know, this overwhelming enthusiasm for these early trial results that are coming out. And, and it would be great if we have treatments that are effective for people with this range of disorders that, you know, can be more beneficial to other kinds of products that are on the market. But there's always the potential for unintended consequences. And especially when, you know, for-profit companies are not necessarily invested in um, tracking and doing the public health work that we do in order to maintain public safety as these new products are being rolled out. So I think just highlighting that is is an important takeaway message. Well, yeah, because I think that the fact that the prevalence had, had almost doubled is a, a quite a substantial take-home message that it wasn't just as a small increase it was the doubling not in and by sex as well wasn't it it was i think it was almost doubling for men and definitely doubled um for females um male and female sorry so i think that is a, an, an important take-home message and i'm i'm wondering whether there's what at what point is there more education and more, um, I guess, public health campaigns and knowledge around the hallucinogen use? Because they've usually been quite um, the backseat, I guess, for other drugs, um, less frequently used and just not as prevalent as, I guess, cannabis um, and other drugs. Yeah. I think that's such an important point. And as we're seeing these movements across the U.S. in terms of decriminalization and even legalization of drugs, um, you know, ensuring that from the public health side of things, we're providing people with accurate information about um, potential drug effects, including potential drug side effects, um, you know, and making sure that people um, are using as safely as they can, I think is really important and, and will be additionally important to develop those kinds of public health messages, um, especially as we're seeing these increases, you know, to make sure that people know what they're using and what the effects are and how to use them more safely. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your time. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.